0: Hey, guys, how you doing? Welcome back for spring semester. I don't know if you're ready or not. I was talking to a student yesterday at church that I ran into and said, you ready? He says, yeah, classes start on Tuesday, right? I explained that he was slightly mistaken. And uh, classes start today. Hope Some of you already been in class. Hope you're ready to go. Whether you are or not, we're going. But before we start the chapel sermon, I want to do one little housekeeping thing for you. Uh, Last semester, we began to notice a little bit of a trend at the end of the semester. I noticed it. Our leaders noticed it. We had students come up to talk to us about it. And I just want to take a minute and see if we can uh, recalibrate a little bit. Yogi Berra, who, not Yogi Bear, the cartoon character, but Yogi Berra, the baseball player, Hall of Fame catcher for the New York Yankees. He reminded his players once, it ain't over till it's over, that the game of Baseball is not over till the last out is recorded in the ninth inning. What we began to notice is some of us thought it was over before it was over when it comes to chapel last semester. That all the speaker had to do was give some little indication that they were almost done speaking. And you could hear shuffling going on and people putting books and computers and backpacks and getting coats on. And then some would get up and go get in line at the scanners. And uh, we want to encourage you to uh, adjust that. It ain't over Till it's over, we try to respect your time by ending chapel in a timely manner. It's not due to finish, but till ten, we normally finish uh, a few minutes before or till eleven. Sorry, <laughs> thanks. Uh, and uh, we try to finish early enough. And we ask you to give respect to the speaker and to those who are doing business with the Lord and to the Lord Himself, and to wait to pack up until we say, "Hey, you're sent out." Can we do that? Yeah, good. Well, I get the privilege of bringing the word to you today, and usually at the first chapel of the semester, I preach on the theme of the, to- of the semester, which you heard Garrett say is the power of God, but today is Monday, and I have a Bible, and that collision says that today is Bible Monday, and that means I get to invite you to open God's word for me, with me to the book of John, and we'll be in chapter 12. But before we get there, I want to take you back in time, uh, as I sometimes do, to talk about when I was in your shoes sitting in chapel. And some of you know the story of Patty and John Bray from our early relationship. You know, it didn't go well at first. Anybody remember how many times I asked her out? I heard seven. Someone said three. I heard five. I heard seven. She turned me down seven times. And some of you right now are going, why did he ask her out seven times? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, but her perspective of me was that I was a loud mouthed smart aleck, poor excuse of a ministerial student. And she told her roommates, I wouldn't go out with him if he were the last man alive on earth. That was her perspective of me. She thought I suffered from an overabundance of confidence. Now, my cross-country coach took the look at the same John Bray that she looked at, and he saw a guy who needed more confidence than he had, and sometime before every race, he would come up and get in my face, he'd stare in my eyes, he'd tap, kind of tap me in the chest and say, John, you can do this, you can do this. He wanted me to increase my confidence. My professors would have identified me as smart but not very disciplined. But my my boss in the athletic department looked at me and he saw the same John Bray as other people saw, he just saw it a little differently. He thought I was disciplined and organized enough to put in charge of the the intramural athletic program of the school. My classmates saw me as a leader, so much so that I once got elected as an officer of a club that I'd never even attended, (laughs) which seems a bit bizarre. But they were starting a new club and a couple of girls told me ab- about the organizational meeting and asked me if I was coming and I said I might, not because I cared about their issue but because they were both cute and this was before Patty came along. And, uh, and so um, they said, well, John might be coming and so they elected me secretary. So someplace in an old yearbook there's a picture of me with the, with the leadership board of this club f- that I never attended. And remember Patty's opinion about me? She had a perspective about me that I was loudmouth, egotistical, smart-alecky, all that kind of stuff. It all changed one weekend. We had an opportunity, sort of by coincidence, to spend a couple hours hanging out with each other. She went back to her residence hall that night and said, oh, guys, he's nothing like I thought he was. He's really nice. And that was uh, 49 years ago, I think. And we've been in love ever since. Why, yeah, 49 years deserves more than that. Yeah So why am I telling you all this? Well, it's a simple reminder that the same person can be viewed differently by different people because of the unique perspective they have. Maybe, maybe you've had some personal hurt that causes you to look at someone a certain way or maybe you've had some personal hope or help from somebody that causes when you see someone who reminds you of that person it causes you to look favorably on them or, or maybe you've been disappointed or maybe you've in, been encouraged or maybe you're a cynic or maybe you're whatever but your viewpoint, your pr- perspective influences your attitude and your decisions about that person. That was true when I was your age. It's probably true now of you, and it has always been true. In fact, if we go back to the life of Jesus, you'll see it's true here. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12, to a time just before the crucifixion of Christ, just before the last week of his life, And to get perspective on this, we probably ought to know what came first. Dr. Vardaman, in the last Bible Monday before chapel ended, spoke from John 11, and he tells the story about Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. Lazarus gets sick and dies, and they bury him, and Jesus is not there. And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And in Jewish culture, they believe that the Spirit hung around a, a dead body for about three days I guess just in case the guy wasn't really dead or something they could reanimate him but after three days the spirit went on to its eternal award and the person was considered dead 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 really dead Jesus shows up in day four Lazarus is good and dead and Jesus goes to the tomb and says roll the stone away and Mary the, the sisters say but Lord he stinks by now I mean he's starting to decompose you got the gases all that kind of stuff And Jesus says, Roll the stone away. And when they do, he shouts out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. And uh, he's alive, which stirs a really pretty big sensation. And crowds start showing up just out of curiosity to see Lazarus and to see Jesus. And the religious leaders get all bent out of shape because they think Christ's power is increasing too much. They're worried about their position. They're worried about what's going to happen with how the Romans will take it. And they uh, put out a notice. Anybody who knows where Jesus is staying, let us know, because they're going to arrest him. And that sets the foundation for chapter 12. In chapter 12, um, there are actually three scenes I want to look at in this chapter. And the first one begins with a party. If you're looking for a cast of characters, it includes Mary and Martha, and the text tells us Lazarus was there, and the disciples were there, and there were friends there, and they're all celebrating uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. They're celebrating Jesus for what he had done with Lazarus, and it's just an honor of him. Now, you have to understand there was some risk to hosting a party like this because the word had been put out. Anybody knows where Jesus is, we're going to raid the place, and we're going to arrest him, and Mary and Martha say it's enough He's done enough for us that we're going to take the risk of identifying with him. There was also a pretty interesting moment in this story. The text says, Mary took about a pint of pure nard. This is in verse 3. And she wiped his... Nard is a perfume. And she wiped... She poured... (laughs) Let me start over. (laughs) Mary took about a pint of pure nard an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, why did she do this? It's not like she sat there and thought, man, do his feet smell. Maybe we could dab a little Chanel on it and you know, put, a, put a drop of that there and we'd suddenly feel better about it. In those days, um, people didn't have internet banking like we have today, and they didn't have savings account like we, like we have today. They had to keep their treasure at home with them. And one of the ways that wealthier people did it was by collecting spices or perfumes that were imported. They were small, they were portable, they were costly. We learn in this story that this perfume that that she pours on the feet of Jesus, that Mary pours on the feet of Jesus, are worth a year's wages for a laborer. In Indiana, that'd be a jar of perfume worth somewhere between thirty and thirty-five thousand dollars. Now, sometimes you go and you want to buy a little cologne or something like that, and you say, well, that's too expensive. They want 40 bucks for it. They want 50 bucks for it. This is a $30,000 jar of perfume, and Mary falls at the feet of Jesus, breaks the jar open, pours it all over his feet, wipes it with her hair just because she honors him. Jesus, when the objection came that she was wasting it, said, no, 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 no. She's doing this to prepare my body for burial. Now, she didn't know she was doing it to prepare his body for burial. She didn't know he was dying. But Jesus frames it that way. For her, it's simply an act of deep devotion, of love, of thanks. She's apparently all in on Jesus. But Judas, one of the disciples, objects. He's the one who says, you know what we really should have done? If she were really godly, she would have sold this and we could have given the money to the poor. The reason Judas is objecting is because he's the treasurer of the group. And uh, John tells us that Judas was dishonest and he used to dip his hand into the money bag every once in a while and use it for his own gain. So he's probably more concerned that he's unable to get his hand into the money than he is that the poor aren't getting taken care of. Let me ask you a question. Are you more like Judas or Mary? Now, immediately, most of us would say, well, I'm more like Mary because nobody wants to be identified with Judas, right? Yeah, who's your hero, Judas? What? (laughs) Think about it. Judas, for whatever reason, he began to follow Jesus initially has now come to a point where he's using Jesus to meet his own needs. He's using Jesus for his own benefit. He's following, but he's only following because of what he gets out of it. Some of us are all in with Jesus as long as life is great. Some of us are into Jesus as long as he's doing for us what we hope we want him to do for us. But when things don't go like we want them to, we begin to question. We begin to draw back. Why aren't you doing it my way? And I'm, I think I'm going to take back control in my life again. Mary gave the very best she had. She was all in no matter the cost. And she did it at a pretty great cost. My question for you, if you were really honest, are you more like Mary or are you more like Judas? Is there a part of you that draws back when things aren't going well? that just says, God, you gotta do it my way or I'm not all in? Put that on the side burner for just a second as we look at a second scene. Second scene in the story is about a parade. Each of the four gospels records a version of what we call it the triumphant entry. Jesus and his disciples get a young donkey, has his disciples get a young donkey and he mounts up on it and he rides into Jerusalem. He fulfills a prophecy from Zechariah 9:9, 9, 9, declaring that their king will come riding on a donkey, humble and lowly. He's not, a tri- he's not a military king, he's a humble king. And he's declaring by that act in the triumphant entry that his time has come. Now there's a big crowd. Some of them have been traveling with him. Some of them had come out to Bethany where the party for Lazarus was. Just to see they were curious and they travel with them as they begin to go down the Mount of Olives. And some come out from Jerusalem to meet him. And I mean it, it causes a big stir. And they take palm branches and they wave them and some of them throw them in the pathway. And they shout out Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And this, this declaration that Jesus is king is startling to the religious leaders. And Jesus lets it happen. Now, when Jesus fed the 5,000, it says they tried to take him and make him king, and he wouldn't let them do it. It wasn't his time yet. But now Jesus is declaring, it's time. The crowd's probably hoping he'll use his miraculous powers to overthrow Rome and return Israel to its, what they see as its right, rightful place as a leader in the, in, the, in the world. Jesus has a bigger picture. He says it's an eternal kind of thing. And when the Pharisees tell the religious, tell the Jesus to tell the people to shut up, Jesus, according to one of the other gospels, basically says, guys, this is so much in God's plan that if I tell them to shut up, even the stones themselves will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then John includes an observation that none of the other three Gospels include. And I was reading this as I was preparing to speak, and I thought, what an odd little verse. And yet I think it's important for them for john to share their perspective and for us to get it because i think it represents us sometimes in verse 16 it says at first his disciples did not understand all this only after jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him they knew what was going what was going on they just didn't know what was going on they knew it was a parade they just didn't know why They thought that maybe Jesus is declaring himself and they're hoping to sit in his right hand and his left hand in an earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not satisfied with just a measly kingdom in Israel. I'm satisfied with a kingdom in the world and in the universe that's eternal in nature. And it's Jesus being Jesus. But there's a different perspective all around him depending how he's looked at. The crowd expects a king who will overthrow Rome. The religious leaders are afraid of a king who will try to overthrow Rome. And the disciples. I think we live where a lot of the disciples lived. We think we know what's going on, but we don't always. And when it becomes obvious that life isn't working out the way we want it to work out, we we, we begin to feel doubts rise. We begin to feel confusion. We sometimes ask the question, why is God doing this? We sometimes begin to wonder if he really does love us and if he's really all that. Now, I want to remind you of something. God doesn't stop being God when we're disappointed in him. And God doesn't stop being God when we don't understand. In fact, usually life is not understood until you look at it in reverse. So you look back at, at the experience you've had and see what, uh, what you've learned from it. As you're going through it in the middle, you just wonder, why is this happening? But God is still God, and in all things he works for the good of those who love him. The disciples didn't understand, but they hung in there. And that posture allowed them to become the people who changed the world. One of our greatest challenges is to choose Mm -hmm. to trust, even when we don't get it. Now, there's a third thing that I want us to notice. And if you have a party and then you have a parade, I'd say it's a pause moment, but it's not really a pause. It just looks like a pause. It seems like it in the narrative, but it's actually central to the whole mission of Jesus, and it's central to our reaction to it. These two, the the text tells us that two Greek guys come up and find Philip and say, sir, we'd like to see Jesus. Now, why the scripture identifies them as Greek, we're not entirely sure, although the last thing the Pharisees say about Jesus during the parade time is looks like the whole world has come after him, so maybe it's the first indication that others besides Jews are pursuing Jesus as well. So these two Greek guys come up to Philip, say, we'd like to see Jesus, and instead of Philip taking him directly to Jesus, he for some reason goes to Andrew and says, hey, Andy, uh, these guys would like to see Jesus, and so... Phil and Andy go to Jesus and say, these two guys want to see you. And it's expected for Jesus to say, well, come on up, Let's, let me... Hi, I'm Jesus, who are you? You know, Doesn't do that. In fact, there's no indication that he refers to them again. He just goes into this little statement about what's to come in his life. He says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Hold for a second. Stop and think. We know the the idea. You plant a seed and when it grows, it produces a head of grain with hundreds of seeds on it. Jesus is making the statement that says, when I die, uh, my life will be forfeit in that moment. But what will be produced is a crop that changes eternity. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. And then he says something to them. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, whoever serves me must follow me. Now, the reality is, this idea of loving your life and losing it, and hating your life and keeping it forever, is a repeated theme in the message of Jesus. Each one of the Gospels records a version of this statement, each one in a different context or a different setting. So it's, it's not like Jesus just said it once and they remembered it. Jesus said it again and again and again. I think he wanted his followers to get it. And if he wanted them to get it, I think we probably need to work at getting it as well. Anyone who loves his life will lose it. The word he used, translated life, denotes the individual personality with all its accomplishments and achievements and feelings and attitudes. It's it's what you see about yourself. It's what you see about others. It's this. Then when he says anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, when he talks about eternal life, he's talking about a different, he's using a different word, and it describes One that talks about the spiritual vitality that comes in relationship with God. This love-hate language isn't designed to encourage us to go around in self-despair or self-harm. It's a literary device that simply says, will I risk myself to Jesus? will i put him first or will i focus on my desires and my plans and my comfort and if i choose to put myself first if i choose to protect myself from risk somehow that's the greatest risk of all cuz i'll lose eternal life but if i choose to risk myself into his hands pursue him first that's the pathway to hope we can say i'll control my life and invite jesus to be part of it or we can say i'm give all my life i'm all in and i'll be part of his plan Jesus says, it's one or the other. Choosing to chase Jesus is the path to true life. Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. It's a matter of choosing your perspective and acting on it as as, as a result. Now, we're embarking on a new semester. And I don't know where you are in your college journey. A bunch of you raised your hands saying, this is your last semester, You hope. Some of you are freshmen. I met some of you who just transferred in. It's your first semester with us. Some of you are in the middle of the journey and you're beginning to get a little fatigued and wondering if you're going to make it. Now I want to tell you, wherever you are in your journey, every day you get to choose your response to Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. My question for you is what's your perspective on him, and what are you doing as a result? Some of us can be like the Pharisees a little bit. We step back. We assess what's going on. We're critical. We're negative. We read everything in a negative perspective. We can do that, and if we do, it will cost us joy. It will cost us the opportunity to grow in him like the crowd we can choose to follow our feelings of the moment and when high praise is going on and we're connected to it that feels good but but when we're struggling and we wander away from him that's not healthy we can be like judas and simply serve him when it's convenient we can be like the disciples and not really know what's going on but choose to hang in there until we get a little clearer picture or we can choose the merry posture without reservation pouring ourselves at the foot of Jesus feet of Jesus not understanding everything but just saying of all the options I have this is the very best one because he's worth everything I've got and I don't know where you are in the semester I don't know where you are in relationship with Jesus but choosing the merry posture provides dividends that that are worth every part of it can't out-give God. As you give yourself to Him, He gives His best in return.